Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is the first in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And I'm excited to have with me today, Professor Ming Chao. Hi, Ming. Hey, Nabil. Ming is an associate teaching professor at the Tufts University Department of Computer Science. His areas of interest are web and mobile security and computer science education. Ming has spoken at numerous organizations and security conferences. He has served as a mentor to speakers at the B-Side Las Vegas Proving Grounds track since 2014. Ming's passion for teaching is clear from his list of accolades and awards that he's received over the years. Just to list a few, in 2016, Ming received the Henry and Madeline Fisher Award at Tufts, which is awarded annually to the Engineering Teacher of the Year. In 2017, he also received the Lerman Neubauer Prize at Tufts, which is awarded to him for his outstanding teaching and advising and also having a profound impact on his students, both inside and outside the classroom. Ming has also worked very closely for many years at the DEF CON Security Conference's Wall of Sheep Initiative. A fun fact about Ming is that he has very strong opinions on various video games. Recently, he's been playing Diablo 3 and Stardew Valley on his Xbox One S. And I'm a little sad to hear that he recently rage quit FIFA 20. We are definitely gonna have to hear more about this from Ming. So let's get started. Ming, at a first glance, you look like a mild-mannered boy next door. But under the hood, you have the mind of a devious attacker. So how did you start breaking things? Well, let's see when I first did computer programming. My my fondest memory of not breaking things, but my knack for technology and building things was in high school. I remembered it was my freshman year in high school. I was asked, you need to change your schedule around because one of the computer courses that is in your schedule does not fit. And the option was, well, you can take this computer programming course. Little did I know that would become not only my career, but my lifestyle for many, many years to come. There was a famous joke around me at high school. I went to Saugus High School in Saugus, Massachusetts, public. And I remember back in those days when we had Macintoshes, you know, software expensive back then. There was, you know, hardly any, any internet. You know, we had to use a modem for everything um, if you want to go on the Internet. And it was expensive as well. So I would just pirate software from high school, like Think Pascal from Symantec. And I would do all the assignments at home. So when a computer programming assignment in AP Computer Science was announced, I would just finish it like the night of when it was, a, when it was assigned. So that was really my fondest memory of like building things. But I didn't really get the mindset until breaking things in security until I, well, took a training course with Gary McGraw almost 10 years later in 2004. And that was my first indoctrination to thinking like an attacker. Instead of entering a legitimate first name, enter things like dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, like things that are completely out of whack. Also around that time, I was working at Harvard as a web developer, and I worked with a guy, great guy, turned out, because he would have a big influence. I want to give a shout out to Piers McKinnon, still at Harvard working these days. And he was notorious as Dr. No. 
So he wouldn't say that my software and the stuff that I built for environmental health and safety at Harvard sucked, but he say, yep, your thing is broken, your thing is broken, your thing is broken, your thing is broken, go <laughs> fix it. You know, that was literally like what he would do. Like, this thing is broken, this thing was broken, and that, and that, that still and then you got tired. Then you got tired of hearing the thing was broken over and over again. Yeah, I mean, that's still like the <laughs> narrative at a lot of places. But the combination of the two, Gary McGraw, Pierce McKinnon at Harvard, you know, they show me, oh, yeah, you know what? It's much easier than you think to break these things. People do break these things. So uh, is it Gary that's uh, that's responsible for opening Pandora's box and, and getting you to start thinking about security? He was. And I, I have a, I give Gary a tremendous credit for that. I guess part of it was because his teaching style really, really messed up with mine. Um, he was he both, is a great you know, teacher. Yeah, he had a great, enormous depth. I think the one thing is, no matter what it was, I remember in that tutorial, like 20, 30 people in the room, and he got to know people well. You know, it's not like, you know, everyone's just a number. Like, he would actually felt like more of a, you know, he would try very hard to do a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and I, I felt that. I definitely felt that at the training, so that certainly helped. I think, I think that's the sign of a great teacher as well, right? Any good teacher that I've had, and similar to you, my computer science career kind of skyrocketed in high school as well during programming class. Yeah. And when I started that class, I never thought that having a good teacher was what's going to impact the rest of my life and career in computer science and software security. Um, so I think any good teacher that's kind of the influence that they have of getting to know you and really kind of touching you at an intellectual level to mm -hmm. kind of change your path uh, in life going forward. Yeah. It's also a real tough balance because they will never tell you the answers directly as well. I remember my high school teacher, Karen Joyce, he was in Saugus High School. I, you got to go figure it out yourself. I'm not giving you the answer. You got to learn how to figure <laughs> it out. And it's hard. And that's, that gets frustrating, right? But then that's what drives you too. It, it is. It is frustrating. I think it's more frustrating now because we're in a generation where, you know, you hear this all the time is that you have a lot of the 18 to 22, you the, what they call the entitled generation, the entitlement, you know, or the spoon feeding, because that's what everyone's been so accustomed to. I think it's, a little, it's much harder now than it was like 10, 20, 30 years ago. Well, also, not only that, I mean, information is so readily accessible on the Internet today yeah. than it was when you and I were maybe in uh, in high school and university um, getting a formal education in computer science. I mean, that brings us to a good point, right? What are your views and thoughts on how actual education in cybersecurity and computer science, how has that evolved over the last uh, couple of decades? You mean computer science or cybersecurity? I mean, kind of. I'd be curious about both. I'd be curious about both. But um, what are your thoughts? What do you experience out there as you teach students? Let me say a couple of things about that. I think the one thing that is nice now that which we, you and I didn't have in the bill was this. 10, 20 years ago, if we wanted to learn Java, for example, or if you want to learn about databases, seek MySQL, you had to go buy a book. You had to go buy a book at your local like tech bookstore. There were some back in like Burlington, Massachusetts, some famous ones, or go to the library. That doesn't have, I mean, now there's just so much information out there on the web. You know, you don't need to, yep, yep. I still have my books around, it's so true. I think it's both a good and a bad thing now with all this information readily available. 
number one, it feels like that content and information is much more accessible. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. You know, it's out there. It, I mean, it really levels a playing field in accessibility in terms of the accessibility and the availability of the information. At the same time, there is also the problem of information overload. I'll give you two really, really good examples of why, what the drawback is. The drawback, number one, is I, I'll give you a real concrete example. I've had coworkers that have asked me, what's the best book to use for Python? Right there, that question. Back in the days when we had, when physical books were practically like the only game in town, I mean, it was much easier to make a recommendation. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute. Now you have to think about, you know, are are you talking about physical book? Are you looking for a publisher? Are you looking for an indie publisher? Are you looking for a website? Are you looking for electronic form? Or like, which one? There's way too many more options now. It's even worse when it comes to cybersecurity and information security. In information security, the big question among, and there's a lot of people that are trying to get into cybersecurity, a lot of people getting into security, is the common question is, how do I get started? And if you ask 10 people that, if, if, uh, if 10 people answer that question, 10 experts or 10 practitioners try to answer that question, you get 10 different answers. And so there is a reason why, especially for newcomers, I mean, just that alone like where to get started, there's like just way too many options, way too many avenues. There's a reason why this imposter syndrome is such a problem. There's just way too many options and too many yeah, answers. So people, people get confused by what's trustworthy and what's not or what's useful versus what isn't, and et cetera. Yeah. And also make it even worse, don't even forget about social media because a strong number of people, a lot of people in cybersecurity are on Twitter. I mean, but you can also get the same, you can also have, you know, communities on Facebook as well, too. That actually has both pros and cons as well. Again, you have communities, which is great, but at the same time, the thing is a more information, even more information overload. But there is one thing that hasn't changed, though, I have seen when it comes to cybersecurity in the education space. I've talked about cybersecurity education or lack thereof in computer science curricula since like 2014. I mean, this is six years ago. And here we are six years later in the year 2020. I don't see much change in computer science curricula at all. I still see a lot of students walking out of four years of computer science that don't know a damn thing about basic security. Forget about cross-site scripting, forget about SQL injection. Here we are in 2020, there's still many senior developers who are just, they don't even know about those topics. Hasn't changed at all. And so the question, the question that, that comes to me when I hear something like that is, you know, we have this term engineering that's attached with software. So the study of software engineering. Yeah. Um, and when, I, when you traditionally look at other forms of engineering, like mechanical, civil, et cetera, yeah. in, in that education format, there's focused emphasis on things in the past that failed so that the students can learn from the mistakes and make sure that yeah. going forward, when they're an engineer, they're not going to make those same mistakes. Mm-hmm. In the study of software engineering, I don't think we were ever taught, you know, about the most common vulnerabilities or the attacks that took down a certain organization or a certain website or a certain uh, application. That's never discussed. Why do you think that's the case? Or is software engineering really a misnomer 
and it should still be called computer science. And when we attach the term engineering, we should formalize that a little more. Let me go, go on record by saying two things. I'm going to say it up front. Number one, I've said to many people, I don't even know. I personally can't even describe what computer science even is these days. Let me explain why that is. Now we're at a point where people equate computer science with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Sure. Uh, number two, I would like, and I have colleagues that would like to say that, uh, you know, computer science is about building systems and, you know, understanding how things work, but you have a lot of people that would disagree with that. I also know people that say that software engineering is not computer science as well. I see, I hear that comment a lot. And so, and that problem is, what is where does security belong? I don't know. I mean, you add up all those points, you mm -hmm. add up all those points, and you will understand why I say I don't even know what computer science even is. Yeah. That's so the clearly there's a problem in the definition of these areas of study and how people interpret them and what they take away from it. I mean, that's a problem we're not going to be able to solve today. So let's not worry too much about that. My question for you then becomes, well, let's say you have a student who wants to become a, a cybersecurity professional or get into yep. the career of cybersecurity. Yep. Um, what's your view on making sure they have strong foundation or strong basics of understanding computer science and how software is built? What do you tell them and how do you emphasize the importance of knowing the basics correctly? I do want to, let me answer that question first, but I haven't, I also didn't finish about what I, my feelings on software engineering. Oh yeah. Sorry. I got I, too excited. So, yeah, I mean that it will. I will eventually get back into the but, but to answering your question about. So your question is, what do I tell students about cybersecurity? Like how you get in? I tell them two things. Number one, get the damn fundamentals right. Learn basic computer programming. Understand things like bits, bytes, pointers, memory management. Yeah, and here's why that's important. It makes absolutely no sense to talk about cybersecurity if you don't have the basic fundamentals, if you don't have the technical underpinnings. That's it. That's, 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 I mean, if you don't know the basic technical underpinnings, oh, totally forgot, how about like what a packet is, especially like network security. Like if you don't have the basic technical underpinnings, like the real basic stuff, and I get into an argument about this, like the TCP handshake, okay? Like, if you got to have the basic technical underpinnings first in order to understand cybersecurity, because here's, we see way too so many true. people talk about cybersecurity. They talk and talk and talk, but half of the stuff that I say makes no sense because they don't have the basic underpinnings. Okay. So that's why I tell brand new people, number one, get the fundamentals right. You got to get those because you're going to look like a fool. If you actually talk about cybersecurity and then you don't actually have any basic technical underpinning, oh yeah, and then a lot of stuff that you say makes no sense. I think no, the way the way I tell the way I tell people that is I tell them it's important for you to know how software is actually built in order yeah. for you to learn or figure out how you're gonna break that piece of software. Okay. So I think that's how I iterate the same thing. But yes, continue, please. Number two is to also educate yourself broadly. Let me explain why that's important. You want to have the technical underpinnings, but you also want to educate yourself broadly. Take courses in like calligraphy, take a course in psychology, take a course in political science or information warfare or um, nuclear proliferation. Or even things like music and mathematics and yep. you know, other things. 
because educate yourself broadly because cybersecurity is a very broad field. And I think that's just something that many people fail to understand. A lot of people, especially in business, think that cybersecurity is, you know, just targeted towards technology. Like in a lot of companies, like, oh, it's IT responsibility through cybersecurity. And of course, you know, that's not true because things like legal, huge implication, HR, huge implication for cybersecurity. You got to educate yourself broadly because sometimes the answer is not technical at all. Well, also, when, when I think about it, too, I think some of the most successful people that I've seen in this space, they're usually very adaptable. You know, yep. they learn to adapt to different situations, different scenarios, different cultures, different environments. And, yep. you know, technology is always evolving. Yep. Um, same. So is the actual security implications of the evolving technology. Some of the basics and foundations may be still similar, but the way to approach certain problems end up being different. And the people who are most adaptable to those type of changing and evolving scenario yeah. tend to be the most successful from what I've seen, at least. And also, I think there's a huge misnomer for any young people that are studying that's trying to get into security. security cybersecurity is not about the 400-pound hacker in the basement. No, it's not. It's also what cybersecurity is. It's also not hunting down adversaries. It's also not just locking yourself in a room, isolating yourself in a cubicle writing code that would actually like launch a like launch attacks. No, it doesn't. So you're work. saying so you're saying it's not as glamorous as Hollywood makes it seem in their movies like Hackers and Swordfish? The last time I checked in one of those things didn't wasn't the IP address <laughs> like six hundred and ninety nine dot seven hundred and forty three dot negative one and something, something yeah. like that. Something like no. that. <laughs> no, but Mr. Robot, I think, is the most legit show because they have they vet out real security professionals for that show. Now, I want to go back into something about you said about the software engineering role. Probably one of some of the best ways to get into cybersecurity is do one of the following avenues: software development, software engineering, whatever you want to call it, help desk, or network administration or system administration. And the reason is, is because when you're in one of those positions, you actually will be in the front line and see how things really, really work. That's why. I mean, it's a very, the answer right there, or what I feel, is because at one of those things, at one of those jobs, like you actually see how things are really, really done, how things really work. Things Without in practice that, are so different than things in theory, right? So that's what you really get to learn hands-on. Yeah. And... There is an argument to be made. Let's say, for example, you start off with, let's say you start off your, your, your career, your internship in cybersecurity. And then you say you're going to be doing pen testing and you're going to be poking holes at how things break. Well, okay, you can do that. I mean, anyone can, you know, run Nessus, run a Nessus scan against something or run in Metasploit. The, you know, the script kiddies or the tool junkies that are just running stuff. Yeah, you can do that, but... It's going to be a little harder to really have that mindset to understand how things work. You know, it's like, okay, wait, this is good. And then the worst thing is it gets boring. Once you start just doing script kitty stuff, then it gets really, really boring. And it's like, okay, great. Then I just think I place my, okay, what's next? And then, of course, now that's when things like, oh, God, I don't feel like I need to learn more. I need to learn more. I need to learn more stuff. Or come to work, come to work, like, oh, God, I don't think I'm good enough for this. And then more imposter syndrome or comes <laughs> into play. 
uh, th those things will happen. Like if that is the way that you start out, you know, at the highest level. I mean, and another and an analogy is a good one. You never want to start out your career as being a CEO ever, ever. You never want to start out like graduating from school. Oh, and then you become the CEO. That makes no sense. Or you hit the jackpot like on the first day when you go to Vegas, and then you got like, oh my God, I got a false sense of security here. <laughs> well, I mean. I think there's a lot of startup companies and CEOs there that would argue against you, but that's the culture we're in today. It's funny that you say that, though, and and I get it. I understand. You know, I I have the similar mindset where I always focused on learning as much as I can first, yep. before I go and jump in and try to lead something. Right. So it's it's always been important to me. So let me kind of shift gears a little bit, right? So you yep. spend all your time teaching students how to be devious and how to break things. Does that ever worry you that you're teaching students how to break things and hack and be devious and potentially malicious? No. Let me explain why. Because first of all, that information is already out there. Cross-site scripting, SQL injection, cross-site request forgery, how to use a web proxy, um, malware analysis, password cracking, which my students are currently doing right now. All that information is already out there. What did Sam Bones say? He's from San Francisco. He said... You know, the bad guys that are the attackers already know all this stuff. So why not, you know, the good uh, the, the defenders as well and the good, uh, the good folks? I'm not worried about that at all. In fact, I've been doing a lot of reference calls with places like the Department of Defense, the NSA, and for other government roles. And one of the questions they always ask is, well, have the students actually brought, uh, broken into system maliciously? And I say, well, yeah, because that was the nature of the course. And they say, yeah, we get it. We get it. We get it. <laughs> so does the topic of ethics ever come into discussion with your students and yeah. you know as they start thinking from the mindset of an attacker yeah. uh, what type of discussions are you having with them around the topic of ethics well the course what well well the uh well the trade-offs i mean a good example is password cracking mm -hmm. password cracking can be used for good and bad they you know have that uh you know to open that discussion up extremely valuable Another one, another good example of hard-coded passwords and vulnerability disclosure. Now, students generally know in my security classes that hard-coding credentials in the source code for, let's say, an embedded for anything is awful. It's just awful. But what happened if you find that in a medical device? What happened if you find that in a, a critical infrastructure? What do you do? And so those things naturally lead up to the ethics discussion. Uh, vulnerabilities itself, you know, reporting vulnerabilities. Are we going to do a full disclosure or non-disclosure? Like, what should we do? So, a and some of those things are some of these things are so interesting and challenging to get your mind around because things like medical devices, right? They're so critical, uh, mission critical, and they can never fail. How do you ensure that you're finding the right balance between yeah. security and actual usability? Those are some challenging discussions to have with students. And I'm, I'm very curious to hear from you, like, what are types of things that they think about or bring up that you might not have thought of? Well, I think that generally one thing that is a constant reminder for not only my students, but also for myself is you working in cybersecurity, you working in this field, there's no black and white answer. There's no black and white answer. Most people when they're in school, and this is, I have a, just that I have a serious misgiving with how engineering is taught nationwide. 
most engineering school program, the way that the schools that uh, the programs are taught is number one, black and white answers. You know, if you get red marks, you know, it's going to be points taken off. And number two is very little room to fail. You get it wrong, you get it wrong. You know, but you, you know, there's very little room to learn from your mistakes. Right. So a good constant reminder for me is even when I open up these questions, there's always going to be a student that will offer, you know, something that we have never thought about before. Like, especially here's a good one. A good one is cultural issues. A concrete example is, you know, having surveillance. You know, that's done all over the place in China right now. But, you know, culturally, some people will say, you know what? Eh, it could be a good thing to keep the riffraffs out of the country. Keep the riffraffs away. So that's not, that was definitely something that I never thought of. So that's why cultures are important as well, too, in part of this whole discussion. It's not easy at all. There's no black and white answer. And for many students, especially undergrad, that's been their first, that's their first exposure and you know what? I wish more engineering programs were like this. I wish that I, you know, that classes weren't just black and white answers all the time, because this is the world that we're living in right now. I mean, just take a look at what COVID is going on right now. I mean, there's no black and white answers, and everything's so volatile. Yeah, and there's so much misinformation too that's causing people to have a level of distrust in the information they're receiving. Mm-hmm. And people seem to be going towards what makes sense to them. And that's what they're sticking to. Yep. So let me kind of change directions again. As you try to teach students to think outside the box, yep. you know, how challenging is it? And what are some interesting projects or teamwork exercises that you do to teach your students about security and privacy? Is it challenging? It is. It's so hard Many of the students I have are sophomore, junior, seniors, and grad students. And it's extremely disheartening to see a lot of the students in computer science, all they've been trained to do is just follow the spec and just build something that works. But they never think about the abuse cases, rarely, ever. Never think about what could possibly go wrong. I mean, that's a huge mindset shift. You know, instead of building something that works, you know, there's a big mindset difference between building something that actually functions and works, which they've all been trained to do. But now you're also playing, you have to think about, you know, the role of a security guard, like, and, you know, a defender, like, oh, what could possibly go wrong? You know, and it's not a surprise that people in this field make the same mistakes and mistakes all over, all over again. It's always a challenge to have to teach people how to unlearn something. In this case, like, you a know, lot of things become muscle memory, right? They, yeah. they think in a certain way because they were conditioned to think yep. in that manner all their lives. When you're 18 to 22 year old, and that's when your mind is like, should be expanding and growing. Really hard to change. But one of the things that we're doing next week in my security class is a capture the flag game. So it's a website, a web application with just, well, it has a number of vulnerabilities. And it's always interesting to see what students do. Sometimes the students have actually gone and actually have picked out the flag to actually decide, hey, one of my couple of my favorite stories was one a couple of years, students found out how I made the flags for the capture the flag game. So one year I used all of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all the characters for each I just shot five shot two fifty-six, all the characters that a certain character's name and those were flags. One year with Ariana Grande songs, 
One year was all WWE. One wrestling. of your favorite artists, right? Ariana Grande. Exactly. Uh, so it's, it's really, so it's always a nice exercise, you know, to see what students really come up with. And it's fun. It's, it's, it's not only a fun exercise, but it was a real hands-on and a glaring exercise of, wow, what happened? What is insecurity means? What could possibly go wrong? Did you feel violated that your students reverse engineered your thought process and figured out how you were setting the flags to kind of cheat the system? Isn't that what the point of the course is? Isn't that <laughs> what the point of security really is? Um, what did Greg Conti call it? I mean, he has his exercise. Is it called a Karyoshi Maru? The one from Star, Star yes. Trek? Yes. Like how you game the system. Right. I mean, that is all part of security. And I have absolutely no problem with that. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. So, so Ming, I have to ask, um, are you an iOS person or an Android person? Oh, this may be the hardest question of them all. <laughs> it's very controversial. It is. So I want to give a little backstory. My first development and first environment I work with was an Android. I love Android for a learning and as a learning environment. I absolutely love, I mean, Android as a learning environment makes so much sense. I mean, you take a look at tools like ADB, you take a look at, um, hell, I mean, I mean, back in the days, apps were built using Java and they still are up to this day. I mean, Java, of course, doesn't have to deal with things like pointers per se, but I, I remembered saying, and I said this for years, I swear I will never, ever, ever use Android again as a personal device because of all the problems in there. Well, I'm not going to, I want to get back to this. I personally use iOS now still. And okay. there have been many days that I want to eat my word and I say, my next phone will be a Pixel phone. I have actually said that many times to myself, and here's why. I think the quality of iOS has been very interesting as of late. The functionality, I mean, in terms of the interface, how smooth it is, don't get me wrong, that's still good. But it's also really uncomforting is that there's so much walled garden. You don't really know how. I mean, very few people actually have a good understanding of iOS work because everything is so locked down. Everything is so walled garden. That's yeah. not the same case with Android. Well, with the big asterisk, which is, on a pixel phone in which there are a lot of components that are already open source that okay we know how this works yeah so if i had to choose my next phone as of right now my next operating my next mobile operating system i'm going with the android on a pixel phone okay. and the reason being is i can't accept i'm at a point where i just really really can't accept that you know there's just so much that is locked down on ios yeah. and not understanding how things really 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 work yeah you know it's it's amazing how apple has managed to make the devices they make so easy to use and how easy to access all the features without yeah. needing additional training but i mean i use cost? this story i use this story regularly actually uh, my mom is the case study that I have. So for her generation, she's actually surprisingly very tech savvy. And over the course of time, she would always take my, my mobile smartphones that I would hand down to her as I would upgrade to the next device. So over the last 10 to 15 years, she's had BlackBerry devices, various Android devices. I think at one point she even had a Windows mobile device, if you can believe it or not. 
And then eventually she got an Apple device from me, which was an iPhone. And then later on, she also got an iPad. And throughout her life, when the previous devices would fail, she would ask for another smart device. And she would say, I don't care what device you give me. But after her iPad stopped working, what she requested from me specifically was another iPad. <laughs> you know, she couldn't live without her iPad anymore because she just found it so easy to use and she started yeah. learning all the features. So it's amazing how Apple has made things so usable. But of course, it all comes at a cost if you start thinking of it from a security and privacy perspective. And don't give me that argument that one operating system, one of the operating systems is more secure than another because they both have their equally fair share of, of vulnerabilities and issues. I mean, you Absolutely. take, uh, I mean, you take a look at the um, oh Citizens Lab. I mean, the stuff that they find with, uh, you know, what let's say nefarious uh, companies, organizations like hacking team been able to, they've been able to find both vulnerable uh, uh, zero days and both iOS and from Android. It doesn't matter. Both of them have their own fair share of vulnerabilities. I mean, let's be honest, software is software, right? Software is yep. going to have bugs. There's no such thing as a perfect piece of software. And, you know, when you write complex systems like operating systems, whether it's yep. Apple or Google or whoever, there are going to be vulnerabilities and problems in the system. It is, but there's also, and this is in the case why I'm going with uh, a Pixel phone next, is a problem is you do an update, which is, of course, the recommendation from secure for, for, from professionals to go update your device. But then when you update your device, your thing breaks, then things break. That is a problem. That it can well, I mean, it happened with iOS. There is a well, there is a currently, I believe there's some type of a lawsuit going on against Apple because they're known to uh, deliberately slow down older devices when you upgrade to the newest version of their operating system, just to kind of encourage people to also buy their hardware and upgrade their hardware. So it's a it's a known problem, right? And it brings along many challenges, of course. So I guess you know, let's kind of talk about. You know, from your perspective, why is mobile security becoming increasingly important today than it ever was before? Wow. I mean, look at the look at where we are now. I mean, we're all in lockdown. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at everything that we do, I mean, the days of just having a uh, having a desktop or laptop computer, those days are long over. Just having a oh, desktop sure. or laptop, most people now have five, six, seven computers. And that also includes mm -hmm. tablet, phones, and you name it. The watch. Oh, watches, too. Yes, 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 yes. Even things like the Nintendo Switch. We can throw one in there as well, too. We have moved into a world where, I mean, we take a look at online teaching. A lot of my colleagues are using iPads for teaching work. I mean, you take a look at things like payments. I mean, I've been using uh, Apple Pay for most, almost everything now, as much as I can. You take a look at what people spend most of their time on, I mean... Remember in 2008 when I was working at Harvard, I mean, at that time, 20% of the traffic to their learning management system was on an iPhone. I mean, that was in 2008. And here we are now. I just can't even imagine what the number is like. I mean, for a lot of people, by the way, a lot of people, their phone is their computer, especially when they go home. Like if you go to like a, a third world country, a lot of people like their main computer is just their phone. For very good reasons. Yeah. 
I think as technology is advancing, especially as we make hardware advances to make microchips smaller and devices more portable and, and have cheap. more connectivity and, and cheap. cheaper and cheaper and more more accessible to uh, various demographics, I think we're yeah. starting to see a blur between traditional computing with a desktop or a laptop versus what you can do on a mobile device itself. It's um, it's amazing to me how things have shifted. You know, I look at a lot of videos on on YouTube to get ideas for different things that I'm working on. And it amazes me that a lot of the podcasters and video bloggers and um, people who just go review technology, they now can edit almost all of their video content, yeah. you know, purely on an iPad. And it's given them so much more versatility and, and power literally in the at the palm of your hand it amazes me i mentioned my mom earlier my dad would be upset if i didn't mention him either but i can tell you when i was a teenager um and i wanted to buy my first cell phone he got mad at me and and said that he wouldn't pitch in and i had to go earn the money myself yeah. because he didn't see why anyone ever needed a cell phone when there was a perfectly good landline at home yeah but then if i if you see him today I don't think I can even have a conversation with him without, you know, him getting interrupted on his on his iPhone, where he's constantly reading the news, reading magazines, emailing his friends, etc. He's on Twitter all the time. I mean, it amazes me that this person who had this strong view against mobile devices um, less yeah. than two decades ago now is completely transformed. And honestly, I don't think he could survive without having his phone on him for more than an hour. I'll give you an example. I think once people start having phones, I think the first impression that a lot of people will have, including myself, I mean, I even say this, even for me, I mean, I've been a phone user for years and I actually swear I said I would never buy a video console, video game console again. But when I got the Nintendo Switch, it was like, oh my God. And it boils down to something that you said is the versatility. It's once people actually see that and they experience the versatility, they understand. They understand yeah. how powerful that the mobility is, which, of course, mm -hmm. opens up its own fair share problem on the tax surfaces as well. And also the mobile uh, paradigm shift has now even changed how the Internet of Things concept that we talk about, right? Everything is interconnected, whether it be your refrigerator, your toaster, your television, your gaming console, etc., they all have operating systems on them. They all yeah. have software that's running. Typically, it's, it's obviously like a watered-down version of a mobile operating system that's running yeah. on these systems in the first place. But it amazes me how there's software everywhere, even my thermostat. You know, at one point, I wouldn't even imagine why my thermostat needed to be connected to the Internet. But now I know why my thermostats are also Internet connected. It also opens up that scenario and why mobility becomes important because it opens up so many other questions and issues as well, too. A good example is the right to repair. Oh, shoot. Now we have all these devices now. You know, when they break, you throw them away. I mean, you guys spent a couple hundred dollars on the thermostat. I don't have one, by the way. But like, what now? So you opens up, you open up the question of right to repair. You also opens up to issues of planned obsolescence, not only in terms of like, you know, how the software is built, but what about like the uh, Amazon Ring and, you know, those things, I mean, your doorbell or with a, with a camera on them. And, you know, there, there are people on Twitch 
who actually just go randomly dialing a whole bunch of, you know, devices and you just try to like, you know, do all kind of crazy things on them. Yeah. So No, I know. And then also with, with the, with the abundant um, adoption of these type of devices, the yeah. challenge also becomes is that you have to now educate users that keeping the default password, yeah. for example, is bad practice and other things like that. Right. So there's a lot of, a lot of things to do there. Uh, speaking of passwords, um, why don't you tell us a little more about the Wall of Sheep initiative at DEF CON and how you're involved and what are some interesting experiences you've had there? So the Wall of Sheep, which is now, is a, you know, the group, very famous group that now runs the uh, Packet Hacking Village at DEF CON. The Wall of Sheep is headed by Riverside. That's a handle. And I've worked with him since, oh man, since DEF CON 14. I mean, we're talking 2006, 2007. And the mission has always been towards security education. We get a bad rap. I mean, the Wall of Sheep gets a bad rap for being that, oh, naming and shaming wall. Can you elaborate a little bit for the, for the yeah. audience what the Wall of Sheep is first? Yeah, so the Wall of Sheep is a very infamous display. And we have access to all of the DEF CON traffic on the DEF CON network, arguably the, world, arguably the world's most dangerous computer network, because you know who goes to a DEF CON conference. You don't know. I mean, you have journalists, good, guy, uh, good people, bad people, con artists, you name it, makers, students, hobbyists, and then, you name it. And then you have the good people like you and me that also attend. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And so what the wall of sheep is, it is a display of all the people, people's credentials that have been taken off the network, people who have been using insecure protocols to log into things like email websites. So I'll give you a good example. Back in the days before Google was using HTTPS for Gmail, you know, and before Twitter was using HTTPS, I mean, the wall of sheep would be littered with usernames, and passwords with like Gmail, Twitter, social media, Facebook account. It was littered. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole point of that wall is really not to name and shame, but to re- education purposes is to say, look, we caught you. This is what happened when you use an instead when you actually connect to uh, applications and services and securely and you want to be using more secure services. So I feel like we were a bit ahead of our times. You know, before Edward Snowden, you know, when he found all that stuff and because of him, everything, a lot of stuff now has moved to HTTPS. The premise of what we do is still security education. Now we have evolved to not just the wall of sheep and just, you know, listing out, you know, all the people who are using, you you know, websites and services and securely. But we offer things like training, how to build a honeypot. What is a network packet? How to use Wireshark? Packet Detective, and I run a talks track, which is a whole bunch of talks by security practitioners, 20 to 40 minutes long on, you know, to teach the audience something that they can take back and use right away. And we still know that there are just a lot of people who just don't know the basics of things like what's a network packet. How to use Wireshark? It's amazing that we've been we've been working at DEF CON for years, for over a decade, 
And even up to this day, there are still people who have never ever seen things like, even if you're a computer science graduate, they have never seen a network packet. They have never used Wireshark before. They have no idea how to spin up a honeypot on AWS or on a cloud server. I mean, they, those things, it's amazing. And so that's the education that we offer. The premise, we have moved along, we moved ahead, uh, along, uh, you know, we moved uh, and evolved over the years from, oh, just that name and that, just that wall of username and passwords and protocols. We offer a lot of like security, a lot of security education with people really, really desperately need the basics as well. I look at myself and I look back at my career. Yeah, Gary McGraw and Pierce McKinnon, they did a lot for me. They got me involved. But the wall of sheep, when I first got involved with them, they also gave me the education then the basics that I never got. I, mean, I guess it I gave you a sense of a sense of awareness around the, the things that you have to be wary about, right? And, and I think a lot of people appreciate those initiatives because it does give them that awareness training that's necessary to understand how their data and privacy may be compromised. I guess, would you would you also agree that the wall of sheep, in a way, is really meant to highlight the importance of transport layer security, right, TLS, and, yes. and why it's important to have your data in transit be properly encrypted and protected? Yes, absolutely. Um, one other thing that we also are very mindful of as well, um, just actually, I'm sorry, I would like to say two things. In the last couple of years, we've done a lot of trainings for military and veterans, and the reason why is because professional development comes to those groups far few in between. So we offer those at the, at the evenings at, at DEF CON. The other thing that I really, I speak to world about the team and the group. It's a very diverse team as well, too. What that means is we make it very clear at our conference, and we even say this at the talks, it's like, you know, things like sexual harassment, complete no-no, absolutely a no-no, don't do anything stupid. Like those are the things we make people aware of as well, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad you guys had that initiative. And anyone attending on, I highly recommend you go check out The Wall of Sheep and spend some time with Ming if you can find him. So, Ming, last question for you. I know you're a big video game fan, so you have to tell me what's the reason why you rage quit FIFA 20 and is your TV and your controller still in one piece? The TV is still in one piece. The controller is not. Um, I can tell you this much. I love soccer, but FIFA itself, the game as it is now, is just a racket. It's just a money-making racket for EA. Uh, Let me tell you everything that was wrong this year. It's no different. What I view FIFA is, especially over the last few years, it's like a slot machine. It's going to a casino. The focus is now on Ultimate Team, which is, think of it this way. It's playing soccer, but, you know, you got to buy a whole bunch of loot boxes. So you got to have to pay to win. I mean, that's how, I mean, you take a look at the financial statement from EA. I mean, where did the, like, take a look at the amount of money that EA makes in terms of all the loot boxes, the trading card packs. So you have to basically buy add-ons to the game to, yep. to gain the necessary to skills win. or unlock things to win. Yep, pay to win. Pay to win. There is no emphasis on based on, on career mode. Everything is the emphasis is all on on ultimate team. It's you know, every other every day there's a shiny new card or player card that comes out that you you have to do an objective for to earn. I mean, 
there's always some bright, shiny new card that is uh, that's available. Okay, there's this great player in the Premier League who just got a 99 rating on a speed. Uh, he ha- you have to do this, this, you have to work, uh, you know, you have to play many games, 40, uh, 40 games a week in order to, uh, to do something, <laughs> stuff like that. The gameplay is completely broken. Passing is completely broken. Everything has to hit the crossbar. The online experience is just absolutely That's so frustrating, awful. isn't it? That's oh, what it is, it's not, not, it's so bad. I mean, here's the here's what happens. Number one, when you the matchmaking is completely broken, you have an okay team, but then of course you get matched up with a team that has every icon or like every icon player. And you know, you play against people like I can't tell you how many times like people have gotten hushed and dabbed and shushed. Or the random disconnect. The servers are really messed up. The servers aren't even. It's, it's like it's just really abysmal. The quality is abysmal, and it's just not worth your time anymore. It feels like you're spending. You do so much work. You play so much for very little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I still have. The last time I purchased FIFA was in 2017. Before that, I used to upgrade annually, and I've stopped since 2017. So if you ever want to play online, let me know. We can play FIFA 17 online. And, I, and here's the great thing. I don't think you can. I think they're closing. I think they closed all the servers for 17. So you're basically forced to upgrade to the, either 19 or 20. Oh, really? I didn't even know about that. I've been yeah. playing it recently, but just they, in, they're gonna in close their servers regularly. Thanks. Hopefully they'll still let you play multiplayer online, even if they get rid of the other server. But who knows? I'm not entirely sure. It's just been an abysmal experience. I mean, there's only so much you can take. You know, if you play weekend league, it's like, oh, you had to play 40 games, and that's unhealthy. Oh, my absolute favorite this year is, my absolute favorite. You play online, everybody plays the same damn, everyone uses the same damn team and damn players. <laughs> that's like, true. what? Because, you know, it's all about the most op player in the game. I mean, so you play against a team with Langlet and Ter Stegen and Ed Militao and Musa Sissoko, <laughs> who's just okay in real life, but he's like a god in the game. And so the whole thing doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But anyways, well, Ming, thank you so much for your time. Um it was a pleasure having you, and I'm so glad we could get you as the first guest on our first episode. Thank you so much. This was great. I had some, I have a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Well, that was Ming Chao, Associate Teaching Professor at Tufts University, Department of Computer Science. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hannan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.